certainly thankful that each of us have been blessed with the health and the matters otherwise that have permitted us to assemble on this Sunday afternoon. As noted already, we were thankful for the opportunity that was ours to gather earlier today. And certainly also, we've been blessed again with another opportunity along that line as well. As you may have noted, we're going to devote some attention tonight to another installment of our questions and answers. And we try to do this roughly once a month or so on average. This is the ninth installment of this year. And so since this is the ninth month, we've done pretty well so far to basically to stay on, on that particular track. As always, I would begin by making the observation that you, you get to select the topics for certainly these particular lessons. That text in Mark eleven twenty nine that Joey read just a moment ago set the stage for the notion that the Lord on that occasion asked a question of His auditors. And of course, that reminds us of how needful, how useful, and also how much of a blessing it can be to have an appropriately asked question. With all of that said, why don't we get started with our first question of the evening. This opening question, as usual, let me try to read it in the wording in which it was expressed. Did Jesus exist before His birth to Mary? Now, the way that's phrased certainly points us to a number of considerations of the Word of God. In fact, on this opening slide, might we appreciate rather majestically that, of course, the birth of the Lord is recorded in the opening chapters of the New Testament. We have Matthew, and we also have a very brief recollection in Mark, and then some more details in the book of Luke. And John really doesn't cast much of a spotlight on that at all. But the fact that the Word of God brings before us is easily this. Our Savior, Jesus, had existed long before He was born, of course, to Mary. Quite often, that's called the incarnation. In other words, when God took the form of human flesh, He existed long before that. And look at some of these verses that, in fact, point us to that appreciation. In John 8, verse 59, Jesus Himself said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham had lived on this planet approximately 2,000 years before Jesus literally walked on earth, and yet Jesus said before Him, I already was. One more time, isn't it a reminder to us that the Lord simply was eternal? In Revelation 1 verse 8, again, Jesus as the principal figure in the Revelation, we're told there that He's, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. Now, the eternality of Jesus is a rather powerful point in the Word of God. The character of that truth is set forth in a number of passages. Perhaps could we not list John 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that verse, you may argue, well, Jesus hadn't been mentioned there. It just says whatever the Word is, that that Word existed from the very beginning. But in verse 14, we learn who the Word is. He's the very one that took the form of flesh and dwelt upon earth. That's Jesus. And so in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was Jesus. He was with God and He was God. The eternality of Jesus, His eternal character, a powerful understanding, isn't it? An additional verse might well be that opening stanza in 1 John. 1 John 1 verses 1 and following. Again, He is highlighted to be eternal. 
And John, that beautiful writer who was himself an apostle, points out that truth as well. So in answer to our first question tonight, did Jesus exist before being born to Mary? Absolutely. Question number two. This question in some way follows rather closely with that one. It says, is Jesus God? One more time, as we allow the Bible to speak for itself, pinpointing the nature of, in fact, who Jesus is and was, we come to appreciate overwhelmingly the answer to this is yes. Is Jesus God? Indeed He was. And indeed He still is. In Colossians 2 verse 9, we have this rather interesting description in Him, that Him refers to Christ, in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that word Godhead refers to those that possess the characteristics of God, to those that possess the characteristics of deity, and it says Jesus was one of them. In fact, of the three, He is the one that possesses in bodily form all the attributes and features of the Godhead bodily. Certainly, we realize neither the Spirit nor the Father ever took the form of human flesh and dwelt upon earth, but Jesus did. So, to state that He was God, that's only the beginning, the veritable tip of the iceberg. For example, in Zechariah 13, 7, let's dip back into the Old Testament just a moment. We even have the affirmation in prophecy that Jesus is God. You might recall the amazing way that's presented in that passage. The ancient prophet Zechariah, making this rather amazing statement, he said, I will smite the shepherd and the one who is thy fellow. Now the shepherd, we know Jesus quoted that passage verbatim on the night before he was crucified, and he applied it to himself. And yet in that Zechariah passage, this one that was to be smitten is expressly called the fellow of God. Now, interestingly enough, that word carries with it the thought of one who is equal in all respects to. So was Jesus God? Zechariah said He was. Why don't we come into the New Testament and look at these? Was there ever a time the Father declared Jesus to be God? After all, if God the Father made that statement, if He made that declaration, would that not hold a fair amount of weight? Think back with me to the moment of the Lord's baptism in Matthew chapter 3. We all recollect that when John baptized Jesus, that these wonderful words from heaven were heard, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now that was the Father speaking. And again, Jesus as the Son of God means, of course, He'd be God. He carried the attributes of His Father. Later on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John were blessed to be present at that momentous occasion, one more time the words from heaven were heard, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Perhaps the strongest passage on this would be Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 8 of that chapter, you and I might well recall that the Father again had these words to say with respect to the Son. Hebrews 1.8, He said, Thou art my Son. And then He said it like this, as He quoted from the Old Testament, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
Now remember, the Father was speaking, and He addressed the Son and said, You're God. Now that's rather direct, isn't it? Was Jesus God? He certainly was. Maybe one last thought on that slide would be that rather direct passage of 1 John 5.20. Very much near the end of that book, John himself, as he spoke or recorded the things which the Father had revealed, Jesus being addressed was called God. So I think we've done our justice for an attempt to answer that question. What about question three? Question number three again reads as follows. Will we know each other in heaven? Now you probably have wondered about the nature of the future recognition after the time of death, when the children of God arrive in heaven, will they know each other? Will, they be, will there be identity? Will there be recognition? That's a very interesting question. And it's a question that the Bible does pose an answer to. Let's step our way through this one. It's a bit lengthier than the previous two, but nonetheless, the message is certainly clear enough. You may begin that particular slide with me by noting again the entire question helps us realize that again after we depart this life the nature of our existence there is not fleshly like it is here we will have left behind the nature of flesh and blood 1 Corinthians 15:54 we will have donned immortality we will be spirit beings but don't forget we will have a kind of body 1 Corinthians 15 labors at length to describe some of the attributes of that body. So it is to be noted that as we sojourn in that land that's fairer than day, it is a fair question to ask, whatever kind of body that's going to be, will we nonetheless recognize, will we appreciate, will we know each other? Look at some of these statements. Let's start in the Old Testament. No less than six times in the Old Testament, Statements of the following fashion are found with regard to the passing of someone upon earth, such as Abraham, or such as Isaac, or such as Jacob, or such as Joseph, or such as Moses or Aaron. It's a rather interesting thing that these kinds of statements are found in all six of those occasions. He was gathered to his people. Now, I suppose there might be some who would mean, well, that just means he was buried near his ancestors. May I say that's not what that means. That is expressly not what that means. It has nothing to do with a place that his body happened to be buried. The reason we know that is look at some of the instances to which that was applied. Think about Moses, for example. Aren't you and I of a position to notice in Deuteronomy 34 that only God knew where Moses was buried? Because the text says God buried him. He wasn't clear. He clearly was not buried near his father, near other members of his distant family. Couldn't the same thing be said of Jacob? You might recall that he had sojourned all the way in Egypt. And there when he died, his sons did take his body back to the land of Canaan. Might we remember the statement that he was gathered to his people described him long before he was taken back and his body actually buried in Canaan. I say all of that to say that phrase, gathered to his people, would seemingly suggest that, notice the pronoun his, it's his people. They were going to recognize Abraham, for example, 
and he would recognize them. It was something that was a remarkable thought, isn't it? Let's go even further, however, than that. At the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to expressly appreciate some of the statements, again, about some of those in that list, about being gathered to his people. With regard to Abraham, you might recall his ancestors had lived in Ur of the Chaldees. After all, that's where God told him to leave and go to a land I'll show you in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. But yet he was buried in Canaan, in the cave of Machpelah, that he had bought to bury Sarah, his wife. So clearly Abraham was not buried anywhere close to his ancient ancestors. Doesn't all that remind us that to be gathered to his people did not refer to the repository location of the body. It was again a statement about those precious souls existent beyond the realm of death and that he would recognize them and they him as well. There are other examples in the Word of God. Consider David with respect to the child born to he and Bathsheba. And that child died, but David made this statement in 2 Samuel 12. With regard to that child, David expressly said that he shall not return to me, but I shall go to him. Did you notice? David used him to refer to that baby. And David said, I'll see him again. I'm going to go where he is. Doesn't that imply again a, a, an identity, a recognition? Beyond that, I would invite you to consider the scene of Matthew 12, verses 38 to 41. Jesus, here in speaking, described a set of events connected to the, to the time of the judgment. So notice, we're talking about the day of judgment. And Jesus made reference to the citizens of the city of Tyre and the citizens of the city of Sidon, and the citizens of the city of Bethsaida. And also he made reference to people like the Queen of Sheba and the people of ancient Nineveh. Now you and I know those peoples had long since lived and died, but yet Jesus made statement that these will rise in judgment against the people of this day, the people of Capernaum, and they'll condemn it. And the Lord used personal pronouns, sometimes in the first person, sometimes in the third person. But He nonetheless indicated that if they're going to rise in judgment, as for example the Queen of Sheba, people are going to know her and she's going to know them. One more time, identity, recognition was to be certain. On the Mount of Transfiguration, haven't you always been impressed that on that mountain we well recall that there was Elijah and yet Peter recognized him. Peter knew it was Elijah, and yet Elijah had been dead for well over 1,200 years. How did Peter recognize him? There was clearly some degree of identity connected to the nature, and so that Peter knew exactly who he was. Maybe one last observation would be a few passages that generally make statements that Paul knew well, and he appreciated too there was to be this recognition. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul expressly said that the Thessalonians would know him and he would know them on the day of judgment. There was to be a recognition. In 2 Corinthians 4.14, something similar was said about the church at Corinth. So the church at Pippin, you and I can enjoy a thought connected to there will be recognition in heaven. Question number four tonight. 
is asked this way. What was the origin of the Jews and of the Gentiles? I suppose that's one of those words that we frequently encounter in the Bible. And maybe we have become so accustomed to them that we can easily read right past them. Here's a reference to some Jews. There's a reference to some Gentiles. The person is asked a very astute question. What was the origin of these peoples and who were they? As you begin this journey, we shall do so somewhat like we did the earlier questions of the night, beginning in the days, at least in earnest, of the Old Testament. Now, you and I recall that God first dealt with the human family by way of laws and characteristics of order that He directly gave to them. They had no Bible, and at that early age and time, there was no prophet. God told Adam what He wanted Adam to know and do. God told Abram what Abram was to know and do. God told Noah what Noah was to know and do. All of that's to say that we typically call that the patriarchal era of time. It's the patriarchs, and perhaps the best known of those were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we notice in Romans 2.16 that in fact references to the patriarchs is such that they did have a law, and it's that law that we have just recently described, the law God directly gave them. But all that brings us to observe that a very special division took place as you begin to contemplate the times of Abraham. Remember, Abraham lived approximately 2,000 years before Jesus. And yet, in Genesis 12, God called him, leave where you currently live and have lived, and you go to a place, a destination, a land which I will show you. That land you and I know was to be what we would call the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine. And so Abraham literally walked on that land. And God told him, I'm going to give your descendants this land. And He even gave him the boundaries of what they would inhabit in Genesis 13. Maybe it's in that connection we now note this. A couple of generations passed. Abraham had a son, we call him Isaac. And Isaac had a son, we call him Jacob. And we well recall that a very special set of distinctions was made concerning the children of Abraham through Jacob. We call them the children of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel in Genesis 32. And so the children of Israel were a people to whom God gave a very special set of laws. He didn't give those laws to other people living on earth. He gave it to the children of Jacob, or rather the children of Abraham through Jacob. You may notice that as you think about the wording those people lived in a place that was called Canaan. But the fourth of the boys of Jacob was a boy named Judah. The word Judah, think how that word sounds. The first part of that word, Jew, came to be used to describe that people. They were otherwise called Hebrews. They are the ones to whom God gave what we call the Law of Moses. And so in Exodus 20 and forward, they were given a set of laws and other peoples on earth weren't given those laws. Those that were given it, those children of Abraham through Jacob, came to be called Jews. 
Now, I'll be quick to admit that the word Jew, as it actually is spelled by you and me today, and as it's actually employed by us, doesn't really occur in the Old Testament until you get to 2 Kings, as you can see on the slide, chapter 16. Now, from that point forward, the word Jew, J-E-W, is used fairly often. Prior to that, more often than not, the word Hebrew is used to describe them. But isn't it interesting, we now see a bit of the origin of both of these peoples. Those that had been given the law of Moses were the Jews. Everybody else was a Gentile. That's the reason the Jews would look down upon the Gentiles and often consider them heathens and barbarians and those that were far from the nature of the will of God. Sometimes they had to be corrected on that point, didn't they? You'll notice as you close that slide with me, all peoples could then be divided according to that basic outline. In the Old Testament, everybody that was one of the descendants of Abraham through Jacob could call themselves and refer to themselves as a Jew. Anybody who could not do that was a Gentile. And so the New Testament writers would often make use of those words to describe large classes of people. As for example, in Galatians 2.15... Or as, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, meaning that everybody walking on earth fell into one or the other of those categories. You may notice in light of that introduction to those peoples, what a storied history, especially the Jews had. They traced their lineage and thus they would often give emphasis to those genealogies of the Old Testament, capable of tracing their heritage and their family line back to one of the actual sons of Jacob. So as far as the origin of the peoples, I believe those do justice to the character of that question. Question number five for the night tonight. What are the roles of the members of the Godhead? That question is exceedingly broad. I thought we will attempt to be exceedingly brief, but one could devote probably years of sermons to attempting to describe the characteristics of the members of the Godhead, the ways in which they have interacted with the human family, the way in which they carry out their work and efforts. But for the night, my attempt to at least approach the answer to this question is in the way I've asked you to note on that slide. First of all, the members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they work in absolute unison and by that I mean God is one, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. To say that God is one is not to say that one could ignore either the Son or the Spirit, but rather it is to say that in unison and in work and in mission and in effort, they carry out those efforts completely united. They carry them out completely in harmony as far as considering what they are. The Father appears in the Word of God to be the principal designer. In other words, the one who organizes in the sense of the one who puts before the nature of the final will to be accomplished. Didn't Jesus seemingly describe the Father that way in the words of Matthew 26? On the night prior to His crucifixion, to the Father He prayed, Thy will. It's the will of the Father. It is His desire, it is His issue that is to be brought about fully and completely. But consider the Son. 
texts such as Colossians 1, verses 16 and following, describe the Son as the one who carries out or executes that which is the will of the Father. Now, is the Father and the Son both God? Absolutely. But the Son's role appears to be one connected to executing the will of the Father. I might even say in John 19, 30, one of the last statements Jesus made on the cross, it is finished. What's the it? It's the will of the Father, and the Son executed it. He put it into practice. He made it effective. As far as the Spirit, maybe no passage is stronger concerning the Spirit than 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 14. In that passage, the Spirit is identified as the one, in fact, the only one, who, knowing the mind of God, reveals that to the human family. In other words, He teaches us. He allows you and I to know what is the thinking, the mind, if you please, of God, because He reveals it to us. Didn't Paul say, No man knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? And in the exact same way, he said, We only know the mind of God because the Spirit has revealed it to us. So the principal roles of those three appear to be easily put in categories like that. Let's look at question six for the night. This question reads as follows. Is the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit one and the same? If they are not, how do they differ? So a question about the description of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit the same being? Or in some way are they different? And if they're different, how are they different? That again is a very good question. And if you and I are the readers of the King James translation of the Bible, we seemingly often encounter the phrase, Holy Ghost. In fact, it happens a lot. If you're reading in a different translation, however, the phrase Holy Ghost will not occur. It is again simply called the Holy Spirit. That's the way in which He is referred. They are exactly the same. If you look at some verses, in fact, I've listed a handful of them, in which we can easily see that they are referring to one and the same being. For example, in Luke 4, verse number 1, listen to the way in which the inspired writer Luke describes this. And here, even in the King James translation, notice both references occur in the same verse. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, if you're reading in, the, in a different translation, it will use Spirit in both cases. But even in the King James translation, full of the Holy Ghost, but then led by the Spirit, so that of which He was full was leading Him. And this is, again, a reference to Jesus. The second one occurs in John 1.33. One more time, listen to the way in which this is interestingly presented. And I knew Him not, but He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. So there's a reference to the Holy Ghost as the verse ends. But it was also the one earlier in the verse that was noted to be the one upon whom the Spirit dwelled, or in whom the Spirit especially dwelled. Now again, other translations will use Spirit in both places of reference in that same verse. Thirdly, 
in John 7, 39, later in the book of John. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So again, the word Holy Ghost is used at one point in the verse, but earlier in the verse it says he was speaking about the Spirit. So again, identified to again be exactly one and the same. Acts 2 verse 4 will perhaps be the last one of that group it will consider, but I wanted to call that one to your attention because of its reference and occurrence on the day of, on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2 verse 4 reads, And they, that's the apostles, were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So no, they were filled with the Holy Ghost, but began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So one more time, both references in the exact same verse to the truth that the Holy Ghost is just the way the King James translators of 1611 chose to refer to the Holy Spirit. But it is identically the same Holy Spirit. We've looked at six questions tonight. As we have looked at each of these, it's been our attempt and our goal to at least highlight, in brevity in some cases, the notion and the considerations that have gone with them. There are other questions that await, and we will come to them on our next installment, our next consideration of these Bible questions and answers. So as usual, if you do have questions, don't hesitate to put them in that box or, or share with them with me personally, however you wish to do that, and I'll be happy to include them in some of our next considerations of these Bible questions and answers. As we come to the close of this lesson, I would simply say that we should be eternally thankful that there are some questions of which the answers have been so directly given to us. And may I mention this one, what must I do to be saved? Oh, how lost we'd be if we had to somehow think we could figure that out for ourselves. And yet the Bible has told us, and there could be that someone in this audience would be in a position that you need to make a public response to the gospel invitation. It may be that you've never obeyed the gospel initially, but you know that you need to because you know that you're a sinner and you know the destination of those in that category. Don't you want to come to the Master who died for you? Don't you want to follow the one who in perfection never sinned? Don't you want to be the one around whom He could wrap His arms and call you His younger brother or sister in the Lord? Tonight, we'd be delighted to help you in obedience to those gospel commandments that as you believe and repent of your sins and you confess the name of Christ and you're baptized for the remission of your sins, the Lord Himself will add you to the family He calls the church. But it could be that you as a faithful child of God have perhaps more recently walked away from that faith in the sense that you haven't lived to the nature of what it demands. You have become careless perhaps in the way that you've lived and in so doing you have brought an element of reproach upon the church and upon the name of the Lord Himself. Tonight if we could make acknowledgement of your sins as you yourself do the same and as you repent of those things, we'd be happy to pray with you and we'd be happy to pray on your behalf. If either of these things would be the need of your life tonight, or if we could pray for your strength and your encouragement, we too would be happy to do that as well. We would invite you to come in either of these ways and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.